0: I've been on the Australian swim team for more than half my life now. In my swimming career over 17 years, I've won 17 Paralympic medals, broken something like five world records, and I still can't seem to grasp the Commonwealth Games gold medal. Although it is 12 of us who are representing the whole athlete cohort, every single athlete is still having an input of some kind into uh, the future of sports integrity in Australia.
1: The first conversations were very much... You know, don't get excited. You know, I'm not going to travel. I'm not going to compete. And you know, within like a year, I was at a Paralympic Games. I was able to kind of be on a on a, on a national, but then international team, and, and ultimately at a Paralympics and now at a Commonwealth Games. I mean, you can't write this stuff. It's it's pretty crazy. It's it's a really humble place when when an when an athlete speaks to you openly and honestly about where they're at, and when you're able to kind of provide a bit of support and and steer them in a direction that helps them not just improve their lives as athletes, but more importantly, supports their lives as humans.
2: Welcome to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Our mission is to protect the integrity of sport and the health and welfare of those who participate in Australian sport.
3: Hello and welcome to Sport Integrity Australia's podcast on Onside, I'm Tim Gavel. Well, the Birmingham Commonwealth Games are fast approaching, with competition getting underway on the 28th of July. Sport Integrity Australia has a number of our staff embedded in the Australian Commonwealth Games team. The games are unique, with para-sports integrated into the main competition with able-bodied athletes. Champion para-swimmer Ellie Cole will race in a major competition for the final time in Birmingham. It will be just one event, the S9 Category 100m Freestyle. Ellie, who's won a record six Paralympic gold medals, is yet to win a gold at a Commonwealth Games. This will be her third Commonwealth Games and she says she decided to make it her final competition because of the integration with the Able Body Program. Ellie, who is also a member of Sport Integrity Australia's Athlete Advisory Group, will join us shortly to talk about her preparation for Birmingham and her role with Sport Integrity Australia. We'll also be joined by Champion Wheelchair Table Tennis player Danny DeToro who will be making her Commodore Games debut with her category introduced for the first time. Danny has previously competed at seven Paralympics, five in Wheelchair Tennis and two in Wheelchair Table Tennis. Danny is also Paralympics Australia's Athlete Engagement and Wellbeing Officer. Well, Ellie Cole for many years has been the face of para-swimming but her time as a competitive swimmer is about to come to an end with a final competition at the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham. Ellie will be chasing the only gold medal which has eluded her so far. And Ellie joins us now on Onside. Well, Ellie, how are you feeling in, in the lead-up to what is going to be your, your final meet of your career? How do, you, how do you feel about it at the moment? Are there are there mixed emotions?
0: There are mixed emotions, Um feeling pretty bittersweet. I'm very much looking forward to sleeping in whenever I like. Um, Swimmers are renowned for waking up in the early hours of the morning, but uh, I'm certainly going to be upset to depart my swim team. But in the back of my mind, knowing that I'll always still be part of that team and Um, I'm always going to have a very close family with the swim team there. So I think that eases the burden of leaving the team. But um, I think the sleep-ins at the moment are trumping any other feeling.
3: (laughs) Well, 17 years been an enormous part of your life, hasn't it, to be part of the Australian swimming community?
0: It's been an enormous part, like you mentioned. In fact... I've been on the Australian swim team for more than half my life now. Um, You know, I grew up going through high school on the Australian swim team and then all through my 20s as well. Um, And now I've hit my 30s. I think it's time to experience the other wonders of life. But like you mentioned, it's been a very long career and almost loved every
3: second of it. Almost, yes. What would it mean to you to win gold in the 100 free S9 category? Because you haven't won a Commonwealth Games gold medal. You've won six Paralympic gold medals, but the the Commonwealth Games gold medal is quite elusive at the moment, heading into your third game. So I'd imagine that would be quite a moment for you.
0: It will be. Um, To win that gold would be wonderful. You know, in my swimming career over 17 years, I've won 17 Paralympic medals, broken something like five world records, and I still can't seem to grasp the Commonwealth Games gold (laughs) medal. Um, It's always just kind of slipped through my fingers. So this will be my third Commonwealth Games heading into Birmingham. And um, it's the gold medal in the Commonwealth Games. It's the only thing that's missing from my trophy cabinet. Uh, But let me tell you, trying to win gold at 30 in the swimming pool is proving more and more difficult. Um, I'm training very hard at the moment to give myself the best opportunity. But at the same time, I'm really looking forward to going over in Birmingham and actually taking in the experience um, and knowing that at the other side there's a well-earned rest.
3: Yes, because it must be a different experience because it is an integrated program, which is totally different than the, than the Paralympics and the Olympic Games. So that's what makes it, I guess, so special. Was that part of the reason why you decided to go one more time and compete at the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham?
0: It was um, quite a a large part of the the Paralympic integration into the Commonwealth Games program, I think um, has done wonderful things for the Paralympic movement. For me, I was training with Kate and Bronte Campbell in the lead up to Tokyo, and I was looking forward to going to Commonwealth Games upon my return um, just to celebrate being on a team with them because they were my training partners, but they're taking the year off and they've kind of left me to my own devices. But um, we have a swim team, I think there's 70, around about 70 athletes on our Commonwealth Games swim team. So whilst Kate and Bronte won't be in attendance on our on our team, I'm going to have another 69 athletes to spend my time with. So um, it's like I said goodbye to my Paralympic team in Tokyo and in the Commonwealth Games I'll just say goodbye to the Olympic team as well.
3: So I would imagine given your experience, this is your third Commonwealth Games as you mentioned, but you've been to four Paralympics, there will be younger athletes there drawing upon your experience. Are you ready for for that moment when a young swimmer comes up to you and, and asks for advice?
0: I think that uh, my advice would probably be be quite useless (laughs) mostly because the Paralympic world has changed so significantly from when I was their age that for me to draw parallels to what they will experience is going to be like living in a completely different universe in terms of, um, you know, giving it your all and being dedicated and making sure that you're consistent in training, I can certainly give advice in that respect. But our worlds are so different. Um, You know, Paralympians from 2006 have completely different experiences from Paralympians now in 2022, particularly when it comes to pay parity and recognition by our Australian public. So um, I will give any advice that I can, but I'm not sure that it will be needed. They're going to go into a completely different world, I think.
3: Yes, having watched you compete for so many years now, but you train a lot at the AOS when you were when you were in Canberra, um, training a lot. I just wonder with your stroke whether or not with the one hundred metres you're just going to have to really change your stroke to a certain degree to go that much faster. How, how do you feel about the one hundred metres compared to sort of I guess the style that you have, which is a slow, slowish sort of stroke?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, actually, um, and, and very observational on your behalf, because it's interesting in Paralympic sport, uh, I race against arm amputees and I myself am a leg amputee. And so you'll find that the um, leg amputees tend to struggle in sprint strokes because we don't have that kick to bring our body position up Um whereas the arm amputees seem to struggle across longer distances because the leg muscles are so large. Swimming 400 meters takes up a lot of oxygen for them. Um, And you're right, my stroke is very slow. It's not suited at all for sprinting. In fact, when I trained with Caden Bronte, um, our coach Simon used to call me a Toyota Land Cruiser, a diesel Prado, (laughs) and he used to call the girls racing cars because (laughs) that was it was black and white, like I was not a sprinter and they were. But at the Commonwealth Games, I just have the one event, the 100 metres freestyle. So I have to give it the best shot that I have. Um, I'm not suited to sprinting whatsoever. I can sprint reasonably well. But um, the last few months of my training career is certainly going to be looking different in how I approach training and what my sessions look like. And, um, yeah, I guess you've just got to make lemonade out of lemons at the yes. end of the day. <laughs> uh,
3: you mentioned there that the profile of Paralympic swimming and para swimming is – increased dramatically since 2006 how do, you, how do you cope with that recognition
0: um it's been great seeing the difference I think in particular the biggest difference that I've seen in um, Paralympic sport is the stigma around athletes with a disability um, I feel like most comments that were made to me when I was young a younger athlete were with good intention but actually quite condescending because there wasn't education around what para-athletes could do and nobody knew what para-athletes could do in that day and age. Whereas now, you know, we're seeing Paralympic athletes on mainstream television, on magazine covers with huge sponsorship deals. And um, I guess people are just becoming more familiar and more comfortable with talking about disability. And I've certainly seen that just walking around the streets of Sydney that, you know, people don't shy away from asking me questions anymore or want to Bring up their children over to me to ask about how my prosthetic leg works and um, I saw in the Commonwealth Games in the Gold Coast that young kids were asking how to be Paralympians when they were older Mm. and they were drawing pictures of people in wheelchairs on gold medal podiums so they're drawing the parallel that you can still have a disability and be a champion whereas in 2006 you know, that conclusion was never drawn from seeing someone with a disability. So I think that's probably been the biggest difference that I've seen and that's good change that is now I think part of our Australian culture and, you know, through sport, through employment, we're gonna see some huge leaps and bounds, particularly now with the NDIS, um, with, with people with disabilities now finally becoming just a normal, everyday, mundane, active part of our community.
3: You mentioned there just the change. Part of the change I think has been the change in the language to a certain degree and more talking about the ability of para-swimmers, in particular para-athletes, less about the disability and looking at styles and looking at times, etc., rather than sort of saying "Oh, good on you for having a go sort of thing. It's more more about talking about you as an elite swimmer rather than um, as a swimmer with a disability.
0: That's a great observation. You know, when you were just speaking then, uh, a memory came to mind of when I was younger and I was heading to my first open nationals. So it was a big deal. And the newspaper article headline was coal to make a splash at nationals. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not going to nationals to make a splash. <laughs> Whereas all of my teammates at the same swimming club, you know, their the language around what they were doing at nationals was very different. It's, they were certainly weren't going to make a splash. Um, and certainly, I guess the language, like you said, around media and professionalism in Paralympic sport um, has changed so considerably. And the media are almost having an angle of, Uh, looking towards how athletic and powerful and strong Paralympic athletes look rather than, like you said, good on you for having a go. It's a completely different world to how it was.
3: Slightly condescending too, I guess. Good on you for having a go, isn't it?
0: I know. That's what I said. The language (laughs) when I was younger was quite condescending. It had good intention, but it was actually, when you read that as a young 13-year-old girl, you're like, oh, gosh. People have no expectations of what
3: I can do. (laughs) <laughs> now you're a member of the athlete advisory group with sport Integrity Australia that's a new dimension I guess to your life isn't it because you're looking at life through a and life of an athlete through different lens aren't you?
0: Yeah um, you know I'm coming towards my retirement now and I've learned a lot through sport over the last 17 years on the team. We have um, 12 athletes on the on the advisory group. And each one of us comes from a different sport, different backgrounds, all very different experiences um, and longevity within our careers. And uh, for us particularly, we're seeing, um, I guess, a lot of controversial topics coming into the media around integrity, uh, as well as with Maddie Clements now spearheading sport in Australia, a big angle on athlete well-being. And so to have 12 athletes who are able to contribute and speak about their experiences and offer advice to um, the Sports Commission is pretty marvellous because I feel as though we have a lot to offer to Sports Integrity Australia as athletes. And it's it's wonderful to also, on the other side of the coin, see that they're willing to listen and um, wanting to understand first-hand experiences from us as well.
3: Yes, because it is important, isn't it, to get an athlete's viewpoint? You can administer rules, but unless you fully understand what athletes are going through at the time, it's very hard to connect, isn't it? You need that connection with the athletes to get the message through.
0: Uh, Yeah, I agree with you. I think one of the biggest um, barricades that have come in sport between athletes and administration is a level of trust You know, it's almost like an us versus them in a way. Athletes have a lot of trust within each other, but um, not necessarily in sports administration because I suppose our viewpoints haven't been listened to up until until recently. And so to be able to have, one, Sports Integrity Australia say, we value your opinion, and two, bring together an athlete advisory group to bridge that gap between athletes and sports administration. It can really only do good things. And outside of the Athlete advisory group. You know, we have so many we have hundreds upon hundreds of athletes within Australia who now see that there's an advisory group and are approaching us as an advisory group and saying, like, do you mind raising this issue or we have a concern here? So although it's it is twelve of us who are representing the whole athlete cohort, every single athlete is still having an input of some kind into uh, the future of sports integrity in Australia.
3: Are you finding that athletes are coming to you, putting Suggestions to you or asking for advice?
0: Um, In some cases, yes, but also... Uh, you know us as athletes we're still on pool deck we're still around the track we have our ears to the ground and we're listening to um common threads around uh issues that that may be that may need to be raised with sports integrity australia so whilst we have athletes that are approaching us um i think that we are all also are keeping our eyes and ears open Mm -hmm. looking for anything that can use some form of improvement or at least some discussion
3: can I use this supplement? Uh, why are they testing me at six o'clock in the morning? I know the questions.
0: Well, <laughs> a lot of athletes put that down as their nominated time because they think no one's going to come knocking on their door at six in the morning, but they come knocking on the door at six in the morning.
3: Yes, that's
0: right.
3: <laughs> all right, Ellie, lovely to have a chat to you and, and all the best at the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham. Really looking forward to the 100 metres S9 category. Hope you go well.
0: Thank you. Please wish me luck and cross all of your fingers and all of your toes because I'm going to need it, but I will give my best shot, so thank you so much.
2: <laughs> You're listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia.
3: Danny DeToro is preparing to compete in her first Commonwealth Games with her sport of wheelchair table tennis introduced into the program for the first time. Danny has competed at seven Paralympics, And she joins us now on Onside. Well, Danny, it must be a strange feeling preparing for your debut at the Commonwealth Games, given you've competed at seven Paralympics, but this is the first time you've been able to compete at the Commonwealth Games. How does it feel?
1: Oh, honestly, it's it's incredibly, it's such a privilege, it's a real honour, but it's also a real trip, like being in as part of Paralympic sport for so long, part of para sport for so long. To be able to have a rookie experience is a really cool thing. So, you know, it's really exciting as well. The the actual newness of it. Um, I've I've never been on a on a team with uh, able-bodied and, and para high-performance athletes. So it's incredibly exciting. Um, and I actually just can't wait. Yes,
3: yeah, so you you mentioned there the fact that it is a totally integrated team. Of course, uh, at the Olympics, you've got the Olympics and then the Paralympics, the Commonwealth Games. Everybody's together. So you're going to be in the Athletes' Village with everybody else, which is quite a unique experience, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what I hear, you know. Every single um, one of our athletes, our Paralympians that have gone to a Commonwealth Games, that's exactly what they speak of, is that beautiful integration uh, at every point, whether it's in the dining hall, whether it's in the village, um, there's lots of camaraderie. There's a lot of support. Um, they talk about it like it's the friendly games, um, which is really cool that like you can kind of be in this kind of environment that's super ultra competitive, but there's real awareness of of community and connection. And uh, I'm looking forward to that as well. Like that will be such a very extremely new and unique
3: experience. Tell us about your career, because this is the first time that table tennis, wheelchair table tennis has been part of the, the Commonwealth Games. But you, obviously five Paralympics, an incredible success as wheelchair tennis player, then you switched to table tennis and for the past two Paralympics, you've been a, a wheelchair table tennis player and now you're at the Commonwealth Games. Why the change from, from tennis to table tennis, firstly?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I, I played tennis before my accident. Um, I was playing for almost 30 years. I got to a point, I guess, with tennis where I'd done everything. Uh, there was a couple little injuries that I'd kind of had post-London Paralympic Games in 2012. And it kind of put me out for a while. And, and while there was that time of recovery and trying to figure out you know, what happens next, I, I was actually going a bit mad and just went down to the local uh, table tennis venue, which is here in Coburg in, in, in Melbourne, here where, where I live. And It was just this incredibly warm, wonderful environment where um, not only was it accessible, just like literally able to get into the building, but everyone there was just so excited to kind of have a new person come in and um, incredibly generous with their time, incredibly kind with, with their, you know, time that they spent with me. So I don't know, I just really enjoyed it. I enjoyed learning something brand new. Um, The first conversations were very much, you know, don't get excited, you know, I'm not going to travel, I'm not going to compete, and within, like, a year I was at a Paralympic Games. So um, it it says a bit about, you know, how new this sport is. Like wheelchair table tennis is actually – Quite a developing sport in in this country and and certainly in the region. So, you know, is a bit of good timing and um, incredible people around me just helping me kind of get to a point where I was able to kind of be on a on a, on a national but then international team and, and ultimately at a Paralympics and now at a Commonwealth Games. I mean, you can't write this stuff. It's it's pretty crazy.
3: You mentioned the your accident. Uh, do you mind revisiting that? You know, in 1988. The accident resulted in you ending ending up in a wheelchair do you, do you mind talking about that
1: yeah i mean it was a pretty extraordinary time you know I was at a swimming carnival um myself and all my year level and the year level um, below uh yeah there was a, a retaining brick wall that collapsed um a lot of us got injured in in various ways i copped the most of it um it ended up severing my spine and uh yeah there was a very massive <laughs> change to everything I knew, not in just my life, but the life of my family, my friends, the whole community. Um, I was incredibly fortunate to have great people around me early on and, um, you know, who really kind of showed me that there's no – you know, there's no need to put limitations on what my life can look like and all the things that I want, I can still go after them. And, and for those people and, and for the support I got particularly early on, I'm, I'm still so very grateful. Uh,
3: so how important was that conversation with Sandy Blythe, who who was a member of the Australian Rollers at that time?
1: Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Sandy. So, you know, he was instrumental. Like, he changed. I mean, changed. I mean, he impacted my life in the most extraordinary way. Like, it was incredible timing to have a guy like Sandy in the role of um, recreational officer at the Austin Hospital, which is where I was for four months. And, you know, I just, everything he said, I took it on. And, um, you know, I think he kind of saw a little bit of me in him in a way, you know, he was, he pushed me in really great ways. He challenged me in every single way. And he saw that I just, you know, was ready to kind of go after it. And, that i didn't need to be wrapped in cotton wool I, I didn't need to be you know insulated from what the world can look like and that i was ready for it so you know having him in those early days not just for me but for my parents you know he he had a real impact on them like i can't imagine what it's like to be a parent and to you know watch your child kind of go through this and not feel incredible fear and trepidation of what their life is going to look like but he reassured them that i can have a great life if i want it and I think that helped a lot that allowed them to kind of, I guess, give me the freedom I was looking for. It allowed me to get on the road at 15 internationally, um, travel by myself by the time I was 16. And I couldn't have done that if, if they were like really scared and trying to, you know, I guess shape it in a way that was super protective or super fearful. So he changed everything for everyone. Um, and just became a real mentor and a real friend, um, I think of him every day, you know, I still miss him every day and the impact he's had not just on me but so many other people that not only went through the unit while he was there but who have been impacted by him being on a Paralympic team. Um, there's so many of us and, yeah, we, we're just so grateful.
3: Yes, death, very sad. Uh, obviously, he died at the age of 43 and uh, left an enormous hole in a lot of people's lives, very, very sad. But uh, do your life experiences now um, help you in your role as the Paralympics Australia's athlete engagement and wellbeing officer? Do you feel as though you're able to draw on those life experiences when when you're talking to young athletes in particular coming through?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, this role is really vital to have a lived experience of that position as an athlete, as an athlete with a disability. Um, There's so many nuanced aspects to high performance sport um, when you have a disability, especially when you're coming in fresh and You don't quite know what to expect. You know, the Paralympics is often put in front of people as this, you know, golden opportunity and it really is. But there's a lot to do to get from there to there and um, there's a lot of change and there's a lot of support that's needed and a lot of understanding. And sometimes it's just really easy to have those conversations um, from the get-go when you know that someone understands the position that you've been in and, you know, there's some unsaid things that don't necessarily need to be talked about. You get to the crux of situations a lot quicker um, there's a lot of trust that's already inbuilt. Um, it's, it's a really humble place when, when, an, when an athlete speaks to you openly and honestly about where they're at and when you're able to kind of provide a bit of support and, and steer them in a direction that helps them not just improve their lives as athletes but more importantly supports their lives as humans.
3: And I guess your you studies into Chinese medicine as well, that gives you a little bit more uh, background. You can talk about other things apart from sport, can't you?
1: Yeah, always. Like I feel like, you know, in a way like this role, I get to use everything I've ever learned my whole life. And that's really rewarding. Like it's pretty rare that you use every single thing that you've ever known. And that's what I've been able to do. And so the conversations are very varied depending on who I'm speaking to and, and the the moment that they find themselves in. But I get to draw on all of it all of the time. And it's, yeah, it's such a privileged place to be.
3: Well, tell us about your preparations now for the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham. How how often are you training? Obviously, COVID has restricted over overseas travel. So how do you prepare for something like the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham?
1: Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Like this year, we've finally been on the road internationally. Um, the last two and a half years were a real challenge. Um, you know, Tokyo was the first international comp we had. So, you know, that put a real... Um, a very interesting spin on on, on preparation. But uh, we were able to get to Spain earlier this year. We'll have nationals for the first time in three years, um, just before we head off to Birmingham. So there'll be a really great opportunity to play a, a national event, but with that kind of um, that pressure that comes with being in a very high performance competitive environment, um, we'll have a great national camp and then we'll get on the road. Um, right now it's just about trying to use every single time, every bit of moment to, you know, prepare. I'm training three, four days a week, working two days a week, trying to find a day of recovery. Um, there's a lot going on, but um, yeah, it's it's really exciting. There's a lot to, to work towards, and I'm super motivated for
3: it. So at the Commonwealth Games, will you find yourself not only preparing to compete, but also playing a mothering role, or playing a playing a role whereby you're helping others? Because I know you have a strong desire to help others. Uh, and, but you can't let that distract you, can you, when you're preparing for competition yourself, but no doubt uh, knowing your your natural instincts, um, you'll be looking to to help people as well.
1: Yeah, that's such an interesting point, you know, because um, finding that balance between being competitive and being quite focused, um, this sport is so hard, like it, it requires every bit of focus, attention, relaxation, strength and so, you know, it's it's a real balance between being yourself in that environment and kind of being maybe not so much mother. I think of myself as that cool aunt maybe more okay. than a mum. So um, but, you know, I, I can't help it and I'm and I'm really super curious about people. I, I love having those conversations. Um, I don't have any official role but, yeah, well, I pe- love getting pe- with my community.
3: Yeah, people will be drawn to you though.
1: You know. uh, yeah absolutely and I hope so you know because I think this is such a beautiful experience and kind of coming together within this community in this way I, I want to have those conversations with people and and I'm really curious about how they go about the way that they do their own sport and their own craft so um, while there's no official role um, I, I'm I kind of tend to that just quite naturally so yeah, I'm looking forward to that aspect as well.
3: So seven Paralympics uh, as five as a table tennis player, uh, two as a table tennis player, five as a tennis player, and now a Commonwealth Games. So that does that complete the bucket list now for you? Do you think?
1: <laughs> yeah, it definitely uh, rounds it out, doesn't it? Like you know, as a tennis player, it's it's never been a part of the Commonwealth Games, so it was never on my radar and definitely this is an opportunity as a table tennis player to compete. Um, That definitely ticks a few things off. Um, You know, for me, mostly, I just want to get better as a table tennis player and it's going to take time. Um, There's a lot of athletes out there who are incredibly experienced, um, incredible competitors, and I've got a lot to learn. So for me, I'm just using this as a great opportunity to spend time on table with incredible athletes. Uh, So I'm going to be banking every minute of that and, um, Really, it's just trying to get better. So a bucket list would be able to kind of get into a top 10 in a whole new sport and and start being like quite competitive at a Paralympic Games. But I reckon we're at least six years away from that. So every day it's just chipping away at that at that one.
3: Uh, just on, uh, on another topic, do you think that facilities in Australia are geared towards people with a disability? Because I know there has been a bit of a push for this. I'm not sure that we're there yet though. Uh, a lot of people say, listen, they can't join some sporting organisations because the facilities and sometimes the mentality of people involved in sport just isn't there.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. And, you know, when I started Parasport, so in my accident in 88, there was no consideration, not so much that it was a lack of consideration. It's just that people never really thought about it. There wasn't um, a perceived need Um And there's a lot that's changed in the last 30 years. Like, you know, me rocking up to the Coburg Coburg Table Tennis Centre, I didn't ask for any changes to be made. There were actually, it was a fully accessible club, both mentally and physically, like just getting in the door. But, you know, I appreciate that that is not a common experience across the board, regardless of where you live. And I think it probably gets a bit trickier when you're a bit more regional or um, maybe there's a a lot less people with disability who would be looking to access. But, You know, we're probably one of the most underactive um, groups in this country, um, and we're also the most untapped. So there's room to kind of make sure that, um, you know, accessibility is part of any club or any organisation, any workplace. It's all of those things. It's kind of how do we just make our workplaces, our schools, our places of community gathering, whether it's sport or otherwise, how do we make them more inclusive to people and, and not just for people like me where it's clear what my disability is um, and in some ways it might be quite clear what my needs are but there's a lot of invisible disability out there that I think, you know, people could really take a little leaf out and just get to understand some of that and start thinking about how they can actually be a lot more accommodating and accessible and welcoming um, and supportive of, of all of or everyone in community, because ultimately that's when we get richer. You know, I know when I go to the Kobe Table Tennis Club, when the guys are hitting massive, big topspin forehands, when they kind of see someone in a wheelchair like me, it it makes them think differently about everything. And that's what we need. We need diversity of experience, diversity of thought. And when you see someone with a disability or have conversation with someone with a disability, it creates a different in your head and that's what we need is is more doors to be open more opportunities and sport's a great place to start that conversation for sure.
3: Of course this is the Sport Integrity Australia uh, podcast on side and we have spoken to a number of Paralympians over the years and talked about integrity and what they say is that listen it's different between Paralympians and a lot of other elite athletes because we're not doing for money we're we're doing it because we love it. We love to participate. It's part of who we are. And I guess you, you don't see as many integrity breaches in Paralympic sports or parasports as you do in a lot of other sports.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because as the money comes, so too do people looking at ways to kind of you know, get the results. And, you know, intentional misrepresentation, which is linked to classification. So, people um, misleading what their functional capacity or ability is in order to get a classification rating that is perceived as more preferable. um, So, they can get better results. I mean, that seems to be something that um, is definitely happening. You know, like, the more exposure that Paralympic sport is getting, the more that there is money coming in. So, you know, I feel like that's kind of bound to change as well. Um, while most of us don't get paid to do what we do, um, the, push is so that, the push is that that changes, that there's awareness and with that awareness comes financial support and exposure. So um, I think it's just a matter of time before we kind of start seeing even more of those things. And um, yeah, there's a bit of work to do there, I, I think, for sure.
3: Daniel, thanks very much for joining us. All the best, at your first Commonwealth Games. Seems strange to be saying that, given you've been to seven Paralympics, but your first Commonwealth Games. Really looking forward to watching you in action. Thanks very much for joining
2: us on OnSide.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
2: And now for our segment, From Left Field, where we answer a question from the public.
4: Hey everyone, my name is Laura Britton. I'm an Olympic weightlifter and a clean sport educator with Sport Integrity Australia. The question I have from left field today is, how can we actually tell if someone is using a performance enhancing drug? Well, there are a number of ways that an athlete can be caught doping in addition to testing positive on either a urine or a blood test. This includes monitoring selected biological variables over time with the athlete biological passport, which indirectly reveal the effects of doping rather than detecting the doping substance or the method itself. In addition to this, clues to indicate someone might be doping include sudden physical changes that don't align with their training and diet, changes in behavior such as becoming more secretive, associating with people they wouldn't normally, or even unusual parcels being delivered to their home. If these behaviours are reported to Sport Integrity Australia, an investigation could occur and the athlete could be caught if they are using, trafficking or administering a banned substance.
3: Well, thanks for listening to Onside. I'm Tim Gavel and good luck to our Commodore Games team in Birmingham. We'll return shortly with another episode of Onside.
2: You've been listening to Onside, the official podcast of Sport Integrity Australia. Send in your podcast questions or suggestions to media at sportintegrity.gov.au. For more information on Sport Integrity Australia, please visit our website, www.sportintegrity.gov.au, or check out our Clean Sport app.